Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. I'm coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Garland Nixon is off today. For the next two hours, I'll explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. At least six dead in shooting at July 4th parade outside of Chicago. It is alleged that 22-year-old Robert Crimo III of suburban Chicago perched on a rooftop fired dozens of rounds at spectators at a 4th of July parade in Chicago on Monday, killing at least six people and adding yet another name to the list of American towns caught up in a countrywide wave of mass casualty shootings. Here we go again. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's one of the top lawyers in California, if not the country. His firm handles police misconduct, including excessive force, deadly force, false arrest, illegal searches, racial profiling, and jail abuse. And he has argued cases before the Supreme Court. Attorney John Burris. John, as always, welcome back. Well, thank you. Good to be with you. It has been a horrific period of time, yes. most recently. <laughs> Yeah, I think about the rise law. Let, let me start with this. As of uh, a little earlier this afternoon, charges have yet to be filed in Chicago against Robert Cremo III. Is that odd? Does that signal anything to you? Well, number one, it's not odd. Uh, it is a, a criminal case, and they can take normally two or three days to get going of defiling particularly when you're trying to figure out all the types of charges that are going to be filed here. Uh, he is in custody, so he, on, the, on the Illinois law, he probably has two days, two business days. They have to charge him or, or to release him. Uh, and, and so that period of time has not elapsed. Uh, in a case like this, uh, you can file charges immediately, but you probably will have to amend those charges um, because you don't know all the facts uh, mm -hmm. as of yet. So it seems to me that um, this period of time is not unreasonable, nor does it su suggest in any way they're not comfortable with the charges that they want to bring against a young man. So law enforcement has described him as a young white man with long black hair. He was apprehended without incident. He briefly tried to flee but was caught and then handcuffed face down, according to police and photos. I can't help but think about how fortunate he is uh, to, to still be living, to still be among the living. I can only say if, if, he, had, if he had not been white, it might have been a whole different outcome. Well, we see that often, in, uh, you know, in, in cases, police do shoot and kill African-Americans. I think some of the killings that we have seen where there's been some minor traffic offense or even a major one that a death resulted from, the shooting death of a young man, when it probably could not have happened. You're taking your time, uh, de-escalated, uh, think about your, your status and how you could do this uh, by taking more time. You could have saved that person's life. In a case like this, where a man has killed uh, uh, at least six but tried to kill many, many, many more, there seemed to have been a great deal of effort to not take him down, uh, to, to apprehend him as if what, as what the law provides, that you're supposed to bring people in uh, safe. 
even if they've committed something horrendous. So I've only seen over a period of time this kind of duplicity in terms of the judicial system um, that uh, has occurred. So it wasn't surprising to me that he was not he was brought in. We've seen that in several cases more mm-hmm. recently. Mm-hmm. So, but not surprising. Opponents of gun control have pushed back denouncing the shooting but rejecting the notion that America's mass shootings are related to easy access to firearms. One of the members of Congress just cited the example in Denmark as saying, you see, even in Denmark, with strict gun laws, people get shot. Uh, Your thoughts on this easy access to rapid-fire rifles such as the AR-15? Well, obviously, if people didn't have access to the weapons, they, they can't commit the crime. But I will say, given what the Supreme Court is saying, I don't see how there's going to be any kind of um, restrictions restrictions placed upon the purchase of these firearms. At best, if you have some notice that a person may be bent on killing folks, you have the red flag laws that you have, or you have other ways to notify people. But on balance... I don't see restricting guns any more than we have now that's going to somehow prevent uh, violence from taking place, mainly because there's just too many guns already there. and They're already out in the marketplace, and each state has different rules. Some states allow you to bring these guns into another state, or you can sell them, buy them. So I don't see universal uh, gun uh, rules right now having a dramatic impact, particularly when they're going to be soft as the ones they have now. I mean, there's no the, the law, the law that was passed. It doesn't have real restrictions on people buying uh, these assault weapons. They may say that if you have some indication of mental problems, it can stop you, at least take, put you on notice. They can do that. Uh, but it can't really stop the vast majority of people from buying guns. And when they, went, when they decided they couldn't do anything about 18 to 21-year-olds, which is a group that may have caught this young man in. We certainly know it caught some others. They wouldn't even do that. So they're basically saying if you're over 18 and over, you can buy whatever you need to buy, as long as you don't have any indications that you are mental or have criminal record. The problem one of these young people that we're seeing, they are mental, but they haven't been diagnosed. And so there's nothing preventing them from buying the weapon until something has literally occurred that affects their mental status. So I'm not convinced that they're going to have much, much impact at all. I know it sounds great, and it's horrible that what is taking place. But uh, as long as people have access to these guns, whether it's legal or illegally, I think um, these types of things are going to occur, unfortunately. In reading the Second Amendment, when I look at the commas and the fact that there are no semicolons and I read that one long statement, understanding dependent versus independent clauses, what is your interpretation of the Second Amendment? Does it actually allow for individuals to carry firearms when they are not part of a militia? Well, the way I always understood until very recently, it was about the militia. It was about the time and place when when the Constitution was presented, when you did have the need uh, for people to come together and to protect themselves. But that has long since passed. Mm -hmm. I never read it until this case came out by the Supreme Court a number of years ago, that essentially says that the First Amendment, uh, Second Amendment rights are really for everyday people to have guns uh, to do as they please with. Granted, they also said there can be some restrictions, but they've sort of torn down even those restrictions. So I think that the, that the uh, NRA uh, has co-opted mm-hmm. okay. uh, the, uh, the language of the Second Amendment. 
Gruesome videos, Jalen Walker's motions intensify debate. Attorney disputes the claims. Uh, Jalen Walker was unarmed, wearing a ski mask and running from his car when bullets instantly dropped him in a parking lot in Ohio. Your thoughts on this? They show footage of the police body cameras showing that what appears to be a flash of light. They believe that Walker discharged a handgun before he fled his vehicle. Your take on this? Well, I think the facts are still un- unfolding here. The only thing we know for sure is that he was shot, uh, hit maybe 60 times. Mm-hmm. In and of itself, that's excessive. I mean, that's just an excessive. Uh, on the other hand, if he, if he in fact fired a, a gun at the police officers, they certainly have a right not only to protect themselves, but the interests of the public, too. So the facts of the case really are uh, unstable or unknown to me. I've looked at, I've read the articles and tried to look through the videos. I couldn't tell whether or not he had fired something or not. But I am troubled by the fact, of course, that he had a ski mask on mm-hmm. uh, at the time and that he had been arrested. Uh, at least there was effort to stop him the night before uh, with a gun. So it, it suggested to me that he did have and had a gun. Maybe uh, he dropped that gun or did not have possession of that gun when he was running, running, and he got shot. I did do a case like this way back when. A 14-year-old had a had a relation of had a gun. It was a pellet gun, but he thought it was a gun, and he laid it down and started running from the police. The police chased him down and shot him, you know, a number of times in the back, whatever, as he was running away. This case reminded me of that because it may well may be that if he had something, he dropped it. And the question is, should the police have done what they did do? Uh, what they did do uh, with the number of shots. It was eight officers. It just seems to me that that could have been a better way of handling this without taking that young man's life. If there was a flash, when you have eight guys shooting, that's a firing squad. And the question is, why did you have to have a firing squad? And there seemed to be a contradiction in some of these facts because the police chief himself uh, has come out and raised real questions about the authenticity of what the, what the officers have said. So this is, these are facts that are unfolding. I think there's some other issues that were raised that go to the issue about police accountability, and that is in a shooting of this kind, the officers are not required to give a statement in and about the time an incident takes place, much of which everyday witnesses have to do. Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. I've always railed against is that officers will look at that videotape and get their stories together mm-hmm. and, and tailor that story, uh, and particularly have lawyers involved and police lawyers uh, basically work hand in to, uh, foot with the with the uh, defendant police officers to factor a story that protects them and obviously makes the, the, the shooting victim uh, look bad. So uh, this is one that I don't really know yet. All I know is that lot, 60 shots were fired. That seems woefully, woefully excessive. Uh, and eight officers involved as well. And and it came about from a minor, minor traffic event. Minor traffic event should not result in the person being shot and killed. That's bad policing right there. That means you aggravated a circumstance that you did not have to aggravate. So uh, that's what we call escalation as opposed to de-escalation. Actually, they fired 90 rounds and struck him 60 times. But, but, but the case that you referenced earlier, was that a Los Angeles case that you tried? No, this was a, oh, uh, okay. a Oakland case involving oh, okay. a young boy named Melvin Black, 14 years old at the time. Okay. Uh, make it make it historic. And probably a case that kind of set my trajectory, if you will, on, on police cases. I was so offended by the case. But, the, but that case was then. Now we have now. And the question is, how could this happen? 
And, uh, and so I'm looking to see how the police chief is going to handle this. One thing we have seen is that the police union has weighed in on this on the side of the police officers and basically saying that whatever happened the night before formed the basis for their, for their uh, higher alertness and ultimately the, the use of deadly force. Well, what facts were there that would suggest that? And, um, you know, when you have eight officers, why would you have eight officers come to a scene for, for minor traffic events in the first place? Mm, well, well, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. This is a traffic offense. And we've often said, let the person go. You know the person lives in the town because you got his license plates, all that kind of stuff. You don't have to chase him down and kill him uh, in, in the manner in which they did here, like the mad dog. Mm-hmm. We have just about two and a half minutes left. Uh, Merrick Garland weighs racial equity as he considers death penalty in Buffalo. The Biden administration's pledge to pursue racial equity in the criminal justice system is facing a crucial test. Whether federal prosecutors will seek the death penalty for the self-avowed white supremacist charged with slaughtering 10 black people in a Buffalo grocery store. Let me just quickly say this. If they charge Peyton Gendron with capital murder resulting in the death penalty. I don't call that racial equity because that doesn't do anything to offset the disproportionate number of black people that are on death row, many of whom probably are innocent. Your, your thoughts? Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm not and have been against the death penalty. I think I spoke on the show before because it's very recent. The inequities that have taken place historically, all the number of African-Americans have been killed, gotten disproportionate sentence and who some of whom determined to have been innocent later and some of which may have been executed. So I don't think that you develop any kind of parity here by one life going in, taking that life in exchange as a way of parity for all the others that have been taken. I just don't accept that as a rational thought. I think that Reverend Al Sharpton has his right. You can't have moral authority on one and then have capital punishment on the other. And as a consequence of that, I think that Mary Garland is in a tough position because, just face it, our issues are for us philosophically, but we're not the political leaders who have to make tough, tough decisions, recognizing that there's a huge number of people that are on both sides of this equation, and, and some of it is African-Americans as well, because they're the ones who've been touched by the horrible shooting. We had what happened in South Carolina, and we had the one in Buffalo. You can imagine those people totally angry, and they want to see real punishment. Having been involved in a death penalty case, I get it. You know, I'm mm-hmm. a person. I know the pain mm-hmm. people suffer. But I don't know in my own mind that I would say that it justifies the taking of a person's life. I just don't. I haven't gone that far yet. John Burris, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Absolutely. Always good to be with you. Take care. Thank you, John. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's a great piece in Truth Out entitled, SCOTUS EPA Ruling Signals Court Will Strike Down Rules Limiting Corporate Profit. On the last day of its term, the Supreme Court handed down a case no less impactful than its shameful ruling a week earlier that overturned Roe. 
In West Virginia v. EPA, the court's right-wing members confirmed they are in the pockets of the fossil fuel companies. The 6-3 majority sided with the coal companies and Republican-led states to restrain the Environmental Protection Agency's power to regulate carbon emissions. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's a professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild and a member of the National Advisory Boards of Assange Defense and Veterans for Peace and the Bureau of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers. And she's the author of this piece. Professor Marjorie Cohn is always welcome back. Thanks for having me, Wilmer. So, quote, capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day, Chief Justice Roberts wrote on behalf of himself, Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett. But it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt on its own such a regulatory scheme. Professor Cohn, that makes no sense to me. It it sounds like Roberts is saying that Congress did not grant EPA the right to implement regulation. Well, did not grant, he's saying did not grant EPA the right to write regulations, but um, Kagan, Elena Kagan, in her dissent on behalf of herself and Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor, said that Congress broadly authorized the EPA to choose the best system of emission reduction for power plants, and she says the best system full stop, no ifs, ands, or buts of any kind relevant here. And she noted that the parties didn't dispute that the EPA's method is the best system, the most effective and efficient way to reduce power plants' carbon dioxide emissions, basically um, moving away from carbon emissions, uh, carbon sources, fossil fuel sources, to renewables, solar, wind. And so since the Congress did not specifically say the EPA has the authority to move from carbon to solar and wind, but rather said uh, the best system, choose the best system for uh, emission reductions for power plants, the majority, the radical right-wing majority, the reactionary conservatives on the Supreme Court, the six of them, um, explicitly for the first time used what is called the major questions doctrine. And it requires that Congress clearly spell out the powers of an administrative agency to make decisions of vast economic and political significance. Now, the court has used this doctrine without specifically naming it. Um, Most recently, uh, to reverse Biden's attempts to tackle the COVID pandemic. Um, In an unsigned majority opinion, they denied the authority of the CDC to stop evictions. And the court also struck down a rule promulgated by OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to mandate vaccines or periodic testing of employees in large companies. So they have used that rationale. And also, and this is really important, and I haven't seen a lot of commentary about it, Wilmer, 
in her dissent, Kagan pointed out that the majority opinion, and particularly Gorsuch's concurrence, are suffused with an anti-administrative state analysis. Um, that means that they are, and Steve Bannon first used the destruction of the administrative state, the deconstruction of the administrative state, those words, basically a program of deregulation. Um, and so Gorsuch would basically tie the hands of the agencies that Congress recognized had the experience to enforce critical laws to safeguard um, the safety, health and safety of the American people. And what this decision does, the West Virginia versus EPA decision, which, by the way, is every bit as impactful as the decision striking down Roe v. Wade, um, it sends an ominous signal that the court is going to use this major questions doctrine to strike down other regulations that limit corporate profits. It could restrict the ability of federal agencies to regulate workplace safety, health care, product safety, water protections, vehicle safety, telecommunications, and the financial sector. So the um, ramifications of this case are frightening and vast. I'm glad you brought up Steve Bannon and the anti-administrative state because I remember very clearly when Steve Bannon said that that's what their agenda was. He said, we're here to eliminate, I believe he said, the administrative state. And I am on record long and hard having said, folks, do you realize what this means? He's basically telling you in not so veiled language that they're trying to undo the Constitution. Well, they're trying to undo, um, yes, the separation of powers, which gives Congress the authority to make the laws. And part of that is delegating issues, important issues regarding health and safety and other regulations to federal agencies. And what Steve Bannon was talking about, and he thought that confirming Gorsuch to the Supreme Court was key because Gorsuch um, is very anti-regulation, has written about this administrative state and how terrible it is, um, is to not only deregulate and deconstruct the administrative state, but also get Gorsuch on Deconstruct. That's the word he used. He said, we're here to deconstruct the administrative state. Right. That's exactly what... Go ahead. I'm sorry to have interrupted you. No, no, that's fine. And But they saw the appointment of Gorsuch as critical to this, um, to, to this, this operation. And it is a very pro-capitalist, entrenched... Um, special interests and uh, and profits in the lawmaking system. I mean, Congress is totally unprepared to come up with regulations to limit the climate. Um, and, and Kagan said that. She said, um, whatever else this court may know about, <clears throat> it does not have a clue about how to address climate change. And let's say the obvious. The stakes here are high, yet the court today prevents congressionally authorized agency action to curb power plants' carbon dioxide emissions. And then she goes on in her dissent to say the court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening. And that's how she ends her dissent. Are we seeing 
kind of the complete manifestation of the Lewis Powell memo when you talk about the the, the corporatization and, and the court siding with big business? Uh, and what makes me think about this is the uh, the federal judge yesterday that held for the U.S. drug distributors in the in the West Virginia opioid case. Are, are we seeing the Lewis Powell memo at play here? Yes, I think you really put your finger on it, Wilmer. Um, And also, this whole push for deregulation goes back to the New Deal, um, when FDR had a program to improve the health and safety of Americans and the uh, rights of workers and created jobs. And at that point, the the Supreme Court was divided five to four in favor of the right-wingers. And that's when... FDR tried to pack the court, in other words, to raise the number of justices, and Mm -hmm. I use that word advisedly, members, I Mm -hmm. should say, they're not just, they don't do justice, most of them, Um, members of the Supreme Court from 9 to 13. Uh, But he did not actually pack the court because the fifth vote, the fifth reactionary, changed his position and started upholding this New Deal legislation, these regulations, if you will, um, and programs that, that benefited the health and safety of, of the American people. And so um, FDR did not pack the court, and many people say that he lost the battle but won the war. Um, but this deregulation has its roots, very long roots, and certainly the Powell Memo, memo um, was, was basically um, saying, yes, Let's cut out this regulation. Let's deregulate and let's pr- protect the uh, the corporations in big business. And it has it both both parties have uh, engaged in deregulation from the Reagan administration to the Carter administration to the Clinton administration to the George W. Bush administration. Um, and now now uh, we see the Supreme Court really taking this whole idea of deregulation and taking it to a new level and enshrining it in Supreme Court case law. That fifth justice that you were talking about, that, I think, is what gave us the, the phrase, the switch in time that saved nine. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. That's exactly right. Okay. okay. <laughs> yes. You wrote another piece, Self-Determination Has Been Wrenched Away from Half of the U.S. Population. But talk about that, please. Um, yes, well, I'm talking about the Dobbs decision, um, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, um, where, for the first time in U.S. history, the Supreme Court retracted a fundamental constitutional rights and held, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. Um, Samuel Alito, re- writing for the majority of five right-wing zealots on the court, um, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, and I'm just describing what he is, he mm-hmm. is the Chief Justice, um, actually did not vote to overturn Roe and Casey. Um, he wanted to, if you will, split the baby mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, uphold the Mississippi law, and I'll tell you what that is, that was at issue in the Dobbs case, but not overturn Roe v. Wade. He said it was unnecessary, it would be a serious jolt to the legal system, let's uh, save it for a later date. Roberts is known to be an incrementalist, and he is a radical right-winger, but he also has a very strong interest in preserving the legitimacy of the Roberts court, which of course is named for him. <clears throat> but Alito was joined by Thomas Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett. Um, and let me just say briefly that um, 
in Roe v. Wade, the court held 49 years ago that abortion was a fundamental right for a woman's life and future, and that states could not ban abortion until after viability, basically when a fetus is able to survive outside the womb. That's generally around 23 weeks. Nineteen years later, the court reaffirmed the essential holding of Roe in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, saying that states could only place restrictions on abortion if they don't impose an undue burden on the right to a pre-viability abortion. Well, what Alito and the other four um, radical right-wingers do in Dobbs is to say that abortion is no longer a fundamental constitutional right, mm-hmm. and therefore any restrictions, that they don't outlaw abortion completely. Um, they leave it up to the states, mm-hmm. uh, and they say that any restrictions on abortion are going to be judged under the most lenient standard of review, the rational basis test, so that if there's any rational basis on which the legislature, the state, could have thought it would serve legitimate state interests, it will be upheld. Um, and the majority said that the, under the Mississippi law, which outlaws nearly all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, well before viability, uh-huh. um, that Mississippi's interest in protecting the life of the unborn and preventing the barbaric practice of dilation and evacuation satisfied that ra- rational basis test. Marjorie Cohn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thanks so much, Wilmer. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Politico reports U.S. won't push Ukraine to negotiate. National Security Council's John Kirby says President Zelensky, he gets to determine how victory is decided and when and on what terms. What does this statement indicate about U.S. intentions? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington. He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Dr. David Walalu, as always, welcome back. Good to be with you, Walmart. So it's not the United States' role to push Ukraine to negotiate a settlement with Russia, even if the Biden administration thought it was the right thing to do, Kirby said. It's time for the United States to continue to support Ukraine, and that's what we're doing. David, I I don't know if this is disingenuous, wrong, stupid, irresponsible, or all of the above. If I put this in the context of a boxing match, sometimes the corner has to do the responsible thing and throw in the towel in the best interest of the fighter. So what is what is John Kirby talking about? <laughs> well, <laughs> he's one I won't take at face value, whatever he says. You know, I've <laughs> right. been following his statements, even when he was the spokesperson for the Pentagon. And, and, and he just, you know, I'm, I'm not blaming the guy. He's been told what to say. So, but at the same time, it gives me an idea that if you couldn't stand up for or stand for the truth or stand on some principle, 
then I got no respect for you. I don't mean it personally, but this is what it is. So the idea that we are saying, no, we can't push Ukraine for negotiations, whatever, it's nonsense. Because the fact of the matter is we do have that leverage. We are the one deciding behind the scenes. As a matter of fact, when uh, the comedian Zelensky was trying on April 4th, to uh, advocate for the, uh, it is time to sit down and have a talk with the Russians. You know, he was pushed from behind the scenes, like, stop saying this nonsense. So I, I, you know, I just don't buy what this argument is all about. And it looks like we are just going to drag the conflict even longer. But here is the thing, Wilmer, that I would like your listeners to get into their head now before that information or that reality becomes the truth is that uh, and this is my personal opinion as a geopolitical analyst what i what i am seeing uh, the trend that i'm seeing is by the end of the year we're going to see a different map of ukraine elaborate on that please what do i mean by this walmart uh, is that the idea with for example or not the idea is with the reality on the ground with russia uh, uh, taking over Luhansk region in eastern ukraine it tells me personally as i predicted before and i wrote about this stuff way back a couple of years ago that i said it's just a matter of time and when that time comes Look for the eastern part of Ukraine to be separated from the West. And this is where I'm seeing it going. So the idea of Kirby saying that the U.S. will not push Ukraine for negotiations, whatever, because they know, they know it's a lost war already. And here is the thing. There are some analysts from different parts of the world, and I've been reading some, that they all converge on one particular question, and I am among those who asked that question, is Ukraine a failed state, given what's going on right now? So the idea for Kirby to be saying what he's saying, you know, come on, man, are you insulting the intelligence of the American people? Let alone an average Joe or average Jane does not understand foreign policy to begin with. So whatever is spewing out of the podium in in Washington, D.C., to them it's like whatever. Why? Because average Joe and average Jane worries about dinner. They are looking at oil prices, fuel prices, that is. Mm-hmm. They are looking at food prices. You know, they are not going to be worrying about the uh, negotiations and so forth. They're worrying about, can I afford to buy food so I can feed my family? That's what matters to them. One other element to this, going back to 2014, as if, if John Kirby wants to sit there on Fox News and say it's not the United States' role to push Ukraine to negotiate a settlement with Russia— Well, Mm -hmm. you overthrew the government in 2014, and it was a democratically elected government. You installed Zelensky. So if you installed him, then why is it why why can't you tap him on the shoulder and let him know when it's time to throw in the towel? Oh, and by the way, you're sending an ungodly amount of money and arms into the fight. So, John Kirby, I, I think you're confused. It looks that way because, uh, to me personally, the way I look at it, when you start sending those kind of, now we're looking at uh, missiles within the 50 uh, miles radius, that means 50 miles. That's you're looking at the city on the border, uh, uh, of the border between Russia and Ukraine, that can be hit. And as a matter of fact, there are reports that some missiles have 
landed on a civilian plane. So what do you expect Russians is going to do? And this is where I am seeing that trend moving into that direction. By the end of the year, we're going to be seeing the eastern part of Ukraine and the western part of Ukraine, two separate entities. And, uh, and uh, this is not also surprising to me personally, because the declaration of the Russians' victory, in my opinion, sends the message to the West. You know, basically letting them know that Russia will forbid any Western actors from dictating the orientation or the direction for that matter as to Russia's near abroad borders. You know, and this and interesting enough, uh, uh, Walmart, that you mentioned 2014, because I use history as my guide and I am student of history. I go back to 2014 speech in which Russia laid the groundwork for seeking the new security and political arrangements with the West at the time in almost similar way like what we did back uh, uh, in Yalta. It's, it's mm. almost like a new Yalta, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And the reason, being, the reason being is that this allows Russia to redefine its sphere of influence, which what we are witnessing right now by taking over uh, this area of your hands. You know, because that is that is the bottom line to it. Russia is not going to allow anything close to its border, which confirmed for me personally that the the uh, the new map of Ukraine is just going to be upon us within a few months, and we're going to see a new Ukraine. And you just mentioned this. Uh... Putin declares victory in eastern Ukraine region of Luhansk. President mm-hmm. Putin uh, yesterday declared victory in the eastern Ukrainian region of Luhansk one day after forces withdrew from their last remaining bulwark of resistance in the province. And this uh, Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, reported to Putin in a televised meeting that forces had taken control. And I found it interesting that it was reported here that Zelensky was saying, oh, the Ukrainian troops didn't withdraw. <laughs> he gave some some lame excuse that they were just uh, reconstituting their form and and going to. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, his argument, his argument, Wilmot, was that he didn't want the loss of the soldiers. So for the welfare of their well-being, he made the decision to withdraw, which is nonsense. No, no, here's what he said. Here's what he said. They didn't retreat. They withdrew. <laughs> oh, that's nonsense. <laughs> it's nonsense. But here is the thing. That declaration of the victory, in my opinion, it's now uh, sort of uh, leaving many in Washington and Brussels scratching their heads. Because now the idea is conveniently or ignorantly you know, uh, both Washington and Europe, for that matter, they're confused about what it all means. And what it means for me personally as a geopolitical analyst is that that's the beginning of the redrawing of the new borders in Ukraine. That's what it means. Mm-hmm. So Europe is already divided because there's a conversation behind the scenes that like what Macron said, that at the end, when the dust settles, at the end, Russia is going to always be there. It's our neighbor. So, and that begs the question of, are Europeans forced to toe the line with Washington? And the answer is yes. And I think it also then it either begs the question or challenges the notion of weakening Russia. Because 
the objective from all of this, as I understood it, was Mm -hmm. to weaken Russia. And if you're talking about redrawing a map of the Ukraine, which I think you are indicating that that means the expansion of Russian controlled territory into what was formerly the Ukraine, I don't know that Russia was weakened in this process. Exactly, because that's a new reality that now (laughs) suggests the urgent need for the West to rethink its strategy uh, towards Russia. You know, because Russia is moving forward. And here is the interesting aspect of it. With this happening now, it makes me wonder about two other countries, Poland and Hungary. Where Poland and Hungary have historically some claim to lands in Ukraine. That makes me now wonder, are they going to reclaim that? (laughs) Which only cemented the notion how divided Europe is. Because now the whole idea about all this is now the uh, sort of uh, the uh, borderlines from Donbass in Europe all the way to Damascus in, in Eastern uh, uh, and Western Asia. This is why Russia now is going to have to protect. And that in itself, it will become the question of, you know, how the Balkan states going to now think how the Eastern Europeans are going to be now thinking. And the whole idea of this policy of embarking, uh, uh, the phone policy, that is, which, as I always say, I fall back here to my country here and think, do American people do understand the impact of that phone policy on their daily lives? And that is the key question for us, at least here in, in the U.S., but in Europe or in Russia or in uh, Ukraine, whatever, we are seeing the outcome of that failed policy. Well, as you talk about Poland and Hungary eyeing mm-hmm. territory in Ukraine, would you see that being a military move or would you see that being a diplomatic move? Because now it sounds more like sharks sensing blood in the water. Well, because we, we are not hearing the truth about, for example, how now the Ukrainians in Poland uh, are being perceived. Because Polish people never forget what happened, uh, historically speaking. And I'm talking from facts here with the people who've been growing through, uh, you know, they went through the Second World War. They have an understanding of the outcome of that war and how things used to be back then. So the Polish uh, or Poland uh, as, as a whole... They never forget all that, despite what you hear emanating from the Polish government. Polish people have a different perspective altogether. Hungarians, on the other hand, they are also thinking in those terms of historical claims to certain land. And this is why you notice that uh, Orban, the president of of, uh, Hungary, Mm -hmm. did not go with the EU 100% because he said, no, 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 no. I import, for example, gas from Russia. I'm not going to jeopardize the energy of my country just to fall in line with the EU. So, and now you are even noticing demonstrations in Poland now because what the EU want to impose on Poland, and they're like, no, 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 no. They, they almost, what my point is, they are waking up to the reality of how things, because like what French President Macron said, at the end, Russia will always going to be there. And so this is what I see. And that's why the statements by uh, Kirby, it's kind of it's just like, come on, man. I mean, <laughs> speak some pragmatism here. <laughs> Dr. David Walalu, as always, 
Really appreciate your time. Look forward to having you back. My pleasure, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Russia demands Israel unconditionally cease its unacceptable Syria airstrikes. For the second time in weeks, Moscow slams Israel for violating Syrian sovereignty. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's a broadcaster and journalist and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf, as always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So yesterday, Moscow condemned an alleged Israeli airstrike near a Russian stronghold in Syria, calling Israel's years-long air campaign categorically unacceptable and demanding it cease. What's going on, Laith Marouf? Well, it seems like uh, Russia has finally had enough of uh, the Israelis playing both sides, especially with the, uh, you know, constant support that they are presenting to Ukraine with military uh, equipment. And, of course, as we see right now, the, uh, the situation in Ukraine is definitely affecting Syria. And uh, as we see here, uh, the Russian government has uh, put its foot down, has, has warned Zionist that the next attack may be the last one. Elaborate on your point that Ukraine is impacting Syria. How so? Well, definitely, you know, before the war in Ukraine, the Zionists were able to play both sides, the Russians and the Americans, and the Russians themselves had the ability to also, uh, you know, although being on the ground in Syria on the side of the Syrian government, to not intervene whenever uh, Israel was attacking Syria. But now that it's clear that the Zionists have lined up uh, on the side of Ukraine and have uh, been increasing their attacks on Syria, and the last attack that happened uh, a few days ago was uh, hit uh, Tartus port. This is uh, one of the most important ports in Syria. Much of the oil and um, products come to the country through that port. So this would, uh, and is very close to, of course, the Russian uh, military base in Syria. And that, that is a threat to, to the Russians and the Syrians, an attack on Tartus, uh, any destruction of its uh, oil, uh, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, the, these facilities that are there to, to take in the oil from coming from uh, outside the country, this will be a huge threat to both uh, Russia and Syria. So there are claims that the Saturday's strike targeted weapons en route to Hezbollah. There are other claims that these were merely poultry farms that were targeted in the airstrike. Do you have any insight into the quote-unquote legitimacy of these targets? The Syrian tel- national television broadcasted images of the attacks on Tartus. Uh, the images were clear. This, these were all uh, farms. Uh, in fact, one of the 
missiles hit a home and uh, a family has been injured um, multiple generations. So it, it, there was nothing for the Syrian government to hide. In fact, everything that the Syrian government does is is in the open and in its its work with both Iran, Russia, and Hezbollah is in the open. There's nothing for them to hide and they're not worried about that. So it's it what we see from these uh, Zionist attacks on Syria is an intention to uh, you know trigger a bigger war as fast as possible. Uh, but uh, it's it, it it's clear that the Syrian government is holding itself back for now until the right moment to reply. Middle East Eye has a story. Shireen Abu Akleh, U.S. says gunfire from Israeli positions likely killed journalists. The assessment was based on investigations by both Israel and the Palestinian Authority, says the U.S. security coordinator. Your thoughts now, this is basically confirming what we've known since the assassination took place, your thoughts now on all of this, particularly understanding the, the deafening silence that has come from the Biden administration on this issue? Well, it's not surprising that the United States doesn't care about Shirin Abu Akhleh, uh, the American citizen that was assassinated by the Zionists. They never cared about any other American citizen that uh, may have died while being killed by the Israelis before. What was shocking to me was the fact that the Palestinian Authority decided to give the bullet to the Americans. I mean, we all know the result was uh, pre-told before. We knew that the Americans were going to do anything possible to uh, protect their uh, vessels, the Zionists. And here we have, uh, lo and behold, of course, that's what happened. Um, and the Palestinians have nowhere to go for justice but to take it out with their own hands. It's interesting that you say that because in this piece in Middle East Eye, it says independent third-party examiners could not reach a definitive conclusion regarding the origin of the bullet, despite an extremely detailed forensic analysis according to the U.S. State Department. So really, it sounds as though, to your point, that the Palestinian Authority gave the United States plausible deniability. Exactly. And that's basically what uh, the Palestinian Authority is there for. It's now completely a collaborative body that tries to absorb as much of the shock uh, in the Palestinian body and make sure that the Palestinian people don't uh, rise up against their oppressor. So, you know, many, many observers asked the Palestinian Authority not to hand over this bullet. But, you know, there has been many investigations already on the assassination of Shirin Abu Akhle. We have clear video evidence showing the Israeli soldiers shooting in her direction. We know that there was nobody else on any of the videos that are out there that, sh- that are shooting in the direction of the Israeli soldiers and or the journalists. So the evidence is all there. If this would have went to court, clearly the soldier would have been convicted for murder, but we're not being allowed to take it to court, and we all are, have to respect the award of America. There is an interesting uh, piece in Mint Press how APAC is leading efforts to dismantle the U.N. inquiry on Palestine. This month, the U.N. Commission on the Occupied Territories and Israel found that the ongoing occupation is the root cause 
of the decades-long conflict in the region. In response to the inquiry led by the U.N. Human Rights Council, members of Congress have initiated legislation to abolish the investigation. Tim Scott being one, a Republican, Jackie Rosen being another. It's atrocious. It's not surprising, but it is it is atrocious, Lath. Yeah, and I mean, think about think about all the arrogance that has to be in the heads of these congressmen to think that they can pass a motion that will order the Human Rights Commission at the United Nations to to follow their directives. I mean, you can you only you know believe that you can do that if if you think you are supreme and that the United Nations is beneath you. Um, so obviously. The United Nations uh, Human Rights uh, Commission has many faults. Uh, we saw it being used uh, by the West many times to, um, you know, paint uh, its opposition uh, opponents as as uh, uh, violators of human rights. But the minute that the Human Rights uh, Commission does anything uh, similar to that uh, to members of the Imperial Order. Uh, it is uh, immediately denied and and all its credibility shot down. We believe the nature of the Commission on Human Rights established last May is further demonstration of longstanding disproportionate attention given to Israel in the council and must stop. This is from U.S. Ambassador Michelle Taylor And then you've got Ned Price saying the State Department has rebuked the U.N. inquiry. We firmly oppose the open-ended and vaguely defined nature of the U.N. Human Rights Council's commission, which represents a one-sided, biased approach that does nothing to advance the prospects for peace. Laith Marouf. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, more hyperbole. Uh, We are being told that we cannot criticize the Zionist colony, uh, because that will make it stand out. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's unbelievable the, the kind of language that is used by these, uh, you know, propagandists. Um, we, we are allowed to criticize any state in the world except the Zionist colony. We're allowed to uh, condemn any violations of human rights by anybody except when it's by the Zionist colony. And if we do, apparently, we're where, uh, you know, giving it special treatment. I think the special treatment that the Zionists receive and the Zionist colony receive is in, in the protection they receive from the West, uh, from any of uh, condemnation of their war crimes and crimes against humanity. Talk about this political action committee, the Urban Empowerment Committee, because that uh, tied to APAC and seems to be now almost as though it's kind of funneling uh, African-American politicians into Congress to carry the water for the Zionist government of Israel. Yes, and this is a very sad day for uh, the the African diaspora communities. I mean, there's not many, quote-unquote, black politicians in the U.S. that are doing anything to defend their own community or better the situation for their communities. But they are elected there to, uh, as as you noted, to uh, give uh, cover for the Zionists. So when it's, it's, it's a black politician that is standing by Israel, it gives it more credibility than 
a clearly Zionist Jewish uh, white person or congressman doing that. Uh, you know, we can go back to the 1960s and see how the Zionists, you know, went through the black liberation movement and attempted to break the line and, and between the Muslim and Christian black peoples in the United States around the issue of Palestine. We saw, we see how there's constant relationships between the Zionist organizations and uh, black Christian churches in order to assure that they do not stand in solidarity with the Palestinian Christians. Uh, but, you know, this is all coming to an end. Uh, in general, there's not much, not, nobody left on this planet that doesn't know about the crimes of Zionism. And anybody who, who, who denies that is, is lying to themselves and to the world. You know, it's interesting as well how much time was spent on the Russiagate story and alleged Russian interference in American elections. But here you have APAC and funneling money into local elections and into congressional races, seeming to do the very thing that the Clinton campaign alleged that Russia was doing. Yeah, but the difference here is that Israel is just a province of the United States, you know. <laughs> so, so they will they will tell you that if you if you if you point that out that you're saying that these people have dual loyalty and that they are you're denying that they're patriots. Uh, but if if an Arab American was bringing money from Arab countries to affect the elections, or a Chinese American was doing that, or a, an African American was doing that from an African country. We will. We know clearly that they will be pointed out as a foreign agent. That they will be forced to register as a foreign agent organization that is attempting to affect the elections. And of course, the only organization that uh, can get uh, scot free and and not be labeled as a foreign agent is APAC. Laith Maroof, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. I look forward to having you back. You have a great day. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Consortium News has a piece entitled Lithuania's Brinksmanship. The restoration of Russia's rail connection with Kaliningrad is urgently needed to avoid a conflict in the Baltics that has worried NATO for a long time. For insight in this, we turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the disarmament of WMD. His most recent book is Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, and he's the author of this piece, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. So you opened the piece on June 18. The government of Lithuania acted on a decision by the European Commission that goods and cargo subject to EU sanctions could be prohibited from transiting between one part of Russia to another so long as they pass through EU territory. Lithuania cited its legal obligation as an EU member to enforce EU sanctions targeting Russia. 
So Russia, citing a 2002 treaty with Lithuania, which ostensibly prohibits such an action, has called the Lithuanian move a blockade and has threatened a military response. What is really being weighed here, Scott? And is there a clear answer to this issue? Well, I mean, the clear answer to the issue is um, if Lithuania blockades Russia, Lithuania will be destroyed as a modern nation state. That's sort of the answer. Um, It's not allowed to do so. It knows it's not allowed to do so. This isn't a game. Uh, Kaliningrad is not a toy. It's not, uh, you know, an abstract. It is the Russian Federation. Um, Blockades are an act of war. The Lithuanian blockade would be in violation of a treaty obligation. Uh, The Russians aren't playing games here. And I think Lithuania and Europe are waking up to that fact. Um, I mean, they're still playing games. They're, they're, this is just a, um, yeah, this is Lithuania flexing its muscles. Um, it's, it's Lithuania trying to uh, shape the, um, the, 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 the debate. Um, it's an attention-getting move on the part of Lithuania. Uh, and yet, if Lithuania is not careful, and it appears that they're, 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 they're heading in the direction of being careful, um, they, would, uh, they would pay a price that um, I, I don't think they've contemplated. Maybe now they are beginning to contemplate, which is why they're, uh, they're moving in the opposite direction. But, um, you know, this, this is not a joke. This is, this is as real as it gets, and Russia is as serious as it can get. To your point that this is not a game, and and I know I did not send you this piece, but I think I'm sure you're aware, uh, Politico is reporting U.S. won't push Ukraine to negotiate, according to National Security Council Kirby. President Zelensky, John Kirby, said he gets to determine how victory is decided and when and on what terms. Can you speak to that? Because that, to me, is incredibly telling. I think it's incredibly dangerous. It's irresponsible, if not stupid, for John Kirby to make such a statement. Well, this is in keeping with the the, the fantasy world that exists in Washington, D.C., among um, American policymakers that— um, if Ukraine isn't winning the war now, they will win the war. Uh, that by providing them with this continued assistance, um, you know, Ukraine will eventually turn the tables on Russia and be able to dictate the terms of the uh, conflict termination uh, to Russia. This this is also in response to a growing pressure on the part uh, uh, that that's being felt by the. Um, the Biden administration, uh, that it's uh, rosy pronouncements of uh, Ukrainian military prowess that were made back in April and May um, are, in fact, uh, just pie-in-the-sky uh, fantasy, that the uh, the fact of the matter is that Russia's winning and winning decisively, uh, and that there doesn't seem to be a, uh, a counter to Russia, meaning that there there isn't anything that can be done to stop the, the inevitability of uh, Russian victory, and so rather than embrace this um, this this new narrative that's being put out by the same media to push the old narrative, uh, the Biden administration is, is simply seeking to distance itself and say um, it's not uh, on us to uh, to dictate the, the the outcome of this. It's uh, it's on Ukraine. The, the truth of the matter is, it's um, it's on Putin. Um, literally, Ukraine. The only thing Ukraine's going to do 
is sign a document of surrender. Um, there won't be any negotiation. Ukraine's not going to be able to put any demands down. Um, it's just irrelevant. Uh, Russia has said over and over again, reiterated this morning, that the uh, special military operation will not uh, be terminated until all objectives have been met. And um, those objectives have not been met as of yet. And Kirby's statement flies directly in the face of early on in this, Zelensky wanting to negotiate and being told very clearly, you can't do that. Boris Johnson flew to Ukraine and I think carried that message, you cannot do this. And there has been more than one, I think, American diplomat that has made that clear as well. Isn't that true? Well, I mean, this is this is media reporting. Um, you know, I, I have yet to have Boris Johnson come out and say in public, Ukraine can't do this. I have yet to see an American official come out and say, Ukraine can't do this. This is, um, you know, uh, spin. I, I, I think basically what the, the message that may have been given to uh, the Ukrainian government is um, we are in the midst of negotiating some very expensive arms um, transfer arrangements with you. Um, and what we need from you is the, um, uh, the perception of, uh, you know, of, of, of you being resolute in the face of, uh, adversity. Um, we need you to be seen as, uh, wanting to continue the fight because then we can go and get this stuff for you. But if it appears that you're ready to bend the knee, um, then you know people are going to ask, well, why would we, why would we send tens of billions of, uh, of dollars worth of um, support um, to you? But you know, I, I, this this was in response to I think some statements that came out of the presidential office in Kiev um, that suggested that um, Ukraine might be willing to uh, consider, um, you know. Leaving Donbas and uh, Crimea with uh, with Russia's conditions for uh, conflict termination. Um, you know, there was a period of time where Zelensky is, seemed to have uh, some sort of uh, schizophrenia, um, where he would say one thing one minute, one thing another, depending on who he was talking to on the phone. So I think this was an effort by uh, his Western allies to uh, to jam some steel up his spine. Um, and, uh, and 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 get him to uh, hold tight while they were negotiating these things. And this is a lot of money. I mean, it's a big ask. As Zelensky now, you know, mm-hmm. appears not only to not only to have the the, the, the steel shoved up his spine, but uh, it, it hit the greedy button. I mean, he's now picking for everything um, to include, you know, basically, you know, rebuilding all of Ukraine, mm-hmm. paying mm-hmm. for everything. Uh, you know, is there so. Uh, you know, be careful what you ask for in the West. Uh, you'll get it. <laughs> you write in your piece about uh, Russian objectives and red lines. And you say Russians' red lines have evolved to encompass two principles, no direct military intervention by NATO and no attack on Russia proper. How much of this recent reporting now are we to believe that missiles are being sent from Ukraine into Russia? Now it's being reported that Russia is claiming victory in terms of uh, East Ukraine. So when you balance these objectives and red lines, where do you see us being right now in the process? Oh, well, we're, we're, this is definitely a work in progress. I, I, I think, you know, first of all, there, there could be no doubt. Russia just 
uh, oversaw the uh, liberation of the Lugansk uh, People's Republic. Um, that's a victory. It's not the victory. It's a victory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, and, and your, uh, President Putin has uh, said, hey, um, you guys might want to, um, uh, you know, take a pause now. <laughs> You've done a good job. Take a pause. Get you guys ready for the next phase of the fight. Um he also told the other two uh, fronts, uh, you keep going. Uh, the fight ain't over. So a victory, not the victory. Um, and when it comes to Russian territory being uh, struck, uh, you know, Russia said it was a red line. They said if this happens, they will be um, looking at hitting decision-making centers in Ukraine. Um, you know, sometimes um, red lines become, <laughs> you know, less solid, uh, you know, depending on uh, the situation. I, I don't know of anything that would change Russia's, um, you know, uh, determination not to tolerate Ukraine striking Russian soil, uh, especially targets that are hitting uh, civilian areas, killing civilians. Uh, one can only imagine that uh, Russia is preparing uh, the appropriate response for, for, these, for these actions. You close by saying, unlike the Ukrainian conflict, a war in the Baltics will have existential aspects for both sides, which brings the possibility, indeed probability, of nuclear weapons being used. This is an outcome that benefits no one and threatens everyone. Why is this issue different than the Ukrainian conflict? Because many would say that where you are in Lithuania is an offshoot of what's happening in Ukraine. Ukraine is uh, is a conflict totally outside of Article 5 of NATO Charter. Ukraine's not a NATO member, uh, and uh, even if Ukraine decides to attack Russian soil, that's that's a Ukrainian action, uh, facilitated in large part by uh, weaponry provided by the West, intelligence provided by the West, but it's still uh, a Ukrainian action, so it's within the four corners of the uh, special military operation, so to speak, a non-NATO conflict. Um, if Russia takes out Lithuania, uh, that becomes a NATO conflict. And um, one only has to take a look, for instance, in 2020, early 2020, the Department of Defense held um, an exercise which was premised on uh, a Russian military uh, advance in the Baltics. And uh, it ended up with uh, then-Secretary of Defense Mark Esper's in Omaha, Nebraska, at the Strategic uh, Command Headquarters, um, you know, testing out the uh, the launch authorities necessary to fire a low-yield nuclear warhead from a U.S. submarine um, to stop the Russian advance in the Baltics. That's about as real as it gets. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will say this, that if Russia were to strike out against Lithuania, it would be an advance. The Lithuanians would be destroyed. The British would be destroyed. The Germans would be destroyed. Uh, anybody who stood in their way would be destroyed until the only option left to NATO and the United States to stop the Russian advance would be to employ a nuclear weapon. So that's that's the difference. In wrapping up, and you touched on this earlier, Ukraine is now saying it needs $750 billion for a recovery plan. So not only is the United States sending an awful lot of uh, military hardware into Ukraine, now they're talking about $750 billion for a recovery plan 
and we can't recover here in the United States. Scott Ritter. Yeah, no, this is this is insanity. But then again, every aspect of this Ukraine uh, conflict is is insane. It's a conflict that didn't need to be fought. Uh, NATO brought this on itself, uh, and Ukraine's committed, um, you know, an act of self-immolation. Um, this Zelensky's not going to get this money. I mean, we we know a, a couple things. Um, that Europe's economy is going to collapse in the coming months unless a miracle occurs. Um, that uh, that that collapse is going to cause a, a dramatic, um, you know, relook at commitments mm-hmm. that already exist. Um, and there's no way that Europe or the United States is going to allocate 750 billion dollars to to rebuild Ukraine. That just isn't going to happen. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Okay, thanks. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Japan spots Chinese and Russian warships near disputed Senkaku Islands. The Senkakus are uninhabited islands in the East China Sea that the U.S. has pledged to defend if they are attacked. What's behind this latest dust-up? Well, for insight, let's turn to my next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher. K.J. No, as always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So as it is reported, the Japanese government lodged a protest with Beijing yesterday after spotting Chinese and Russian warships near the disputed Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. According to Kyoto News, the Chinese frigate chased the Russian warship out of the area in an apparent attempt to demonstrate that Beijing has sovereignty over the Japanese-controlled Senkakus. A Japanese defense ministry official said it appeared the Russian warship was in the area to avoid a typhoon. KJ, what's going on here? Yes. Well, You know, we have to understand this, uh, some elements of this that are, you know, kind of coincidental and other elements that are deliberate messaging. And clearly, the Chinese and Russian vessels have the right to navigate in the area of the Daoyu Islands of China. Uh, The Chinese claim this as their territory. It was taken by Japan in 1895, the same time that Japan took Taiwan Island, and then it was never uh, returned. The U.S. took claim of the islands, and then along with the Ryukyu or Okinawa Islands, it gave them over to Japan instead of returning them to China, or in the case of Okinawa, returning it to its own sovereign uh, status. And so a Russian frigate entered the uh, island's contiguous zone, uh, and then a Chinese frigate sailed in the same area for about six minutes. Uh, Japan has lodged a process, uh, a protest against this. The Chinese argue that these are their territorial waters, their inherent territories, and that they're fully legitimate and that Japan has no right to make any accusations. 
um, it's also a message uh, or uh, an assertion of Chinese sovereignty over these islands. But it's also a potential flashpoint for uh, kinetic engagement. One of the implied elements of this seems to be a conflict between China and Russia as it relates to the statement that China chased the Russian frigate out of the area. Is there anything to that? Or as uh, it was written here in antiwar.com, when asked if Russia and China coordinated the incident, uh, it says, if you want to know about the Russia side, you got to talk to Russia. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, uh, remember, Russia has several uh, island disputes with Japan, including the Sakhalin Islands. Uh, and therefore, this is a Russian messaging, in my opinion, towards the Japanese from taking, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and uh, essentially they're sending the message that uh, Russia is not to be trifled with as uh, Japan joins uh, the U.S. Uh, and NATO in putting pressure on Russia. There is another story. China and Vietnam vow to talk more about South China Sea tensions and and others. So senior diplomats from China and Vietnam have vowed to hold more high-level talks and to view their bilateral relationship as a diplomatic priority as Beijing faces heightened U.S. efforts to boost ties with its regional alliance. That, to me, sounds great for China, sounds great for Vietnam, And as I interpret this, it's not a good signal for the United States. Yes, it's not a good signal for the United States. Uh, Traditionally, uh, Vietnam and China have had dust-ups and uh, conflict, uh, especially since 1979. But the U.S. would like very, very much to peel off Vietnam and to use it as part of its Asia pivot, as part of its uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. But uh, the Vietnamese have the policy, essentially, uh, what they call the three no's, which is that they don't want to be forced to pick sides, that they do not want to be used against another country for, uh, uh, you know, for another country's purposes. That is, their policies, no alliances, no foreign bases, and no alignment against uh, a third country with a second country. And so uh, China is trying to calm the waters, literally in the South China Sea. The South China Sea, if you recall, is an area where uh, a a multitude, uh, six different countries claim, have different claims over the waterways. And these claims bisect, trisect, and quadrisect. Uh, The U.S. is trying to claim that China is the sole, uh, you know, uh, individual country that is creating, uh, you know, claims. But all of these countries have massive claims and they all conflict with each other. And as part of its bilateral diplomacy, China is trying to uh, reach accommodation with Vietnam over, uh, you know, claims to the South China Sea, especially regarding fishing. Uh, and that will bring Vietnam closer to China in terms of you know, working out the Belt and Road and other uh, uh, related economic measures. I will remark that China has already given the entirety uh, of the Gulf of Tonkin over to Vietnam. It could very easily claim at least half of the Gulf of Tonkin, but it already gave over the entirety of the Gulf of Tonkin 
to Vietnam as a, a goodwill measure. And I believe that there will be further progress along these lines. I'm glad you brought up the Belt and Road because this really sounds as though that China is operating as China operates. Let's see where we can find mutually uh, beneficial areas and issues to cooperate from a business perspective and we'll have the win-win strategy. We can put our differences to a side, work on the common interests, and then the other stuff will take care of itself somewhere else down the road. Yes, that's exactly the strategy. You can contrast it with, for example, the G7 and the NATO summit, which were all about creating alliances and essentially preparing for war, as opposed to China, the BRICS, the BRI, which is about building things, creating connections, uh, creating win-win solutions, finding mutually cooperative ways of uh, relating, and essentially the differences between building and preparing to destroy. There's a piece, is U.S. Fed fomenting another Asian financial crisis? The 1997-like paranoia wafting over Asia comes as the region commemorates how far it's come in the last 25 years or more to the point, how far it hasn't as new threats emerge. Your thoughts on the action by the Fed and the impact that this could have on Asian economies? Well, you know, this is the typical thing that happens in the relationship between the core and the periphery. The core sneezes uh, and the periphery, you know, is bedridden with pneumonia. So there's always an amplification that happens. Currently, the Fed is uh, moving towards raising interest rates, uh, and the higher interest rates go, the more pain can be expected uh, in the third world. But this ties back to the larger history of the 1997 uh, Asian financial crash, which was essentially uh, these Asian tiger countries were doing very well. They were fattened. Uh, and then they were slaughtered. Um, and, you know, the pig was thinking it was living the high life until it was herded into the slaughterhouse. This is exactly what happened. The neoliberal economy works like this. It demands of countries that they liberalize and open up the economy, including that they remove financial controls. And then it encourages debt in that country. Then it engineers or exploits a crisis. In this case, it was Thailand's devaluation of the baht. And then it employs shock therapy or shock doctrine to appropriate the wealth and the control of the economy of a sovereign country. And so this was what happened in 1997, and it affected the majority of the um, uh, Southeast Asian economies. And as a result of that, the Asian economies prepared or have been stocking up, creating, um, uh, creating reserves uh, and bulwarks against this. Now, whether they will be able to hold up against this uh, you know, second crisis remains to be seen. I think it won't be as bad because there have been breakwaters and bulwarks that have uh, been installed, in particular massive sovereign uh, uh, currency reserves, but that remains to be seen. I I still think that there will be pain to be felt. Certainly, Korea uh, will be feeling the pain, as will other Southeast Asian countries. And a couple of things. One is this article is put in the context of the U.S. Fed, but the European Federal Reserve is raising rates 
consistent with what the United States is doing. But also, doesn't this open the door for China to play a larger role? Back in 97, uh, China's influence on the world economy wasn't, I don't think, nearly as big as it is now. So doesn't this open the door for China to step in and as a moderator of some of this as it relates to Thailand and and other Asian countries that could be finding themselves having financial problems as the United States and Europe are raising interest rates? Hopefully that makes sense. Yes, that's exactly the case. So uh, just as in 1997, China was the great shock absorber. It stabilized the Asian financial crisis by not doing what uh, the IMF demanded of it, uh, uh, by not doing what uh, all the economists expected it to do. And therefore, uh, the ability of the West to outsource or externalize the pain completely uh, was, was thwarted. And I think that just as, you know, in every crisis there is an opportunity, China could serve once again the same a stabilizing function. It will function as a bulwark or a, a breakwater uh, against uh, the externalization of uh, Western uh, economic mismanagement, especially caused by this war. Asia Times has a piece, U.S. hypersonic test fails ringing China Russia alarm bells in the latest blow to U.S. faltering hypersonic weapons program, a June 29th test flight failed due to issues in the glide body's ignition system. This, I think, it would be really, really concerning to those at the Pentagon. We have about one minute left. Well, you know, these things fail. And the doctrine right now is to fail often, but to develop rapidly. And so I think there's a bit of panic going on, but I think eventually hypersonics will be implemented. But the fact remains that the United States is several years behind both Russia and China, which have fully functioning hypersonics. In fact, North Korea is uh, credited with having a hypersonic missile. So I think, once again, it speaks to the lack of uh, investment, the lack of capacity, and ultimately the shifting uh, you know, technological and uh, military uh, landscape. Do you think as this failure resonates throughout the Pentagon that it impacts the level of aggression that the United States is demonstrating? It, it could very well turn up the heat in the minds of many of those in the Pentagon. We got about 30 seconds. I think yes and no. I mean, the hypersonics ultimately are a way of uh, foiling deterrence. They they are used as uh, they will be used for uh, potentially nuclear war, and so I think that you know there is tremendous uh, you know discontent about the current outcomes, but I think eventually that will shift, and there will be massive and aggressive funding to make sure this works. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure, folks. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. 
There's an interesting piece in Mint Press how spooks and establishment journalists are circling the wagons. And they talk about uh, earlier in the month, Russia banned 29 British journalists, including several from the BBC and The Guardian, on the grounds that they were associated with the defense complex. That claim was not, at least in all cases, quite as preposterous as was widely assumed. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Walmer. This is part two of a two-part series, and they're showing, uh, they say, we saw how the Guardian's Luke Harding, one of the journalists banned by Russia, has promoted entirely unsubstantiated smear stories that have hewn closely to the agenda of the Western intelligence services. Steve, how big of an issue is this and how important is it for people to really pay attention to what's going on here? Well, it's it's pervasive and it's something that is almost taken for granted at this point that we're going to have members of the intelligence community delivering our news or quote-unquote journalists or reporters who are no more than adjuncts of the intelligence agency trying to put out what are de facto press releases and calling it journalism. In the case of Luke Harding, he was busted multiple times. This is the guy who wrote a, a book called Collusion. And back when Aaron Maté was still at The Real News, uh, he had him on his show. And he asked him, where is the collusion? And Luke Harding left the interview. Like, he got up and walked away from the interview. This is someone who is so used to just putting out unsubstantiated nonsense that when faced with the question, could you please validate the title of your book, he didn't have an answer and got up and ran away from the interview. The guy who described an entire made-up wardrobe by Paul Manafort in a non-existent visit to the Ecuadorian embassy. Um, and it's just that one, This in just this example, that's one Guardian reporter, but we live in the United States where we have the uh, Smith Modernization Act as part of the 2012 NDAA, which allows for complete and total government propaganda on the airwaves, unfettered, unrestricted, with zero uh, hindrance from intelligence agency directorship to newsroom. It's not only the people that they promote, but it's also the people and the entities that they dismiss. And in this piece, they talk about <clears throat> what happened to Chris Hedges on RT. And uh, Chris Hedges, foreign correspondent with The New York Times, he's an incredibly distinguished journalist. He's on the show fairly regularly. But they just deleted six years of his Emmy-nominated show On Contact for RT. There were some of the, the best interviews that I have seen in years on that series, too. In particular, one with a couple of interviews with John Pilger, that I really hope have been archived or are around somewhere. Uh, it's it's not it's not just hedges either. There has been a coordinated effort uh, in the West entirely to go after academics, to go after scientists, to go after anyone who's speaking outside of the narrative. Doctor Pierce Robinson uh, is a, a very well respected academic out of Berlin, Germany, who we've had on the show a number of times, who's found himself just 
oddly in the crosshairs of uh, some of these, you know, Guardian people, Paul Mason, uh, for example, um, as as a subject of attack simply for challenging propaganda narratives. Piers runs an organization for propaganda studies and has done tremendous work on uh, the false flag gas attack in Syria uh, and, and a number of other issues. Um, but this is just pervasive. If it's if it's not Chris Hedges, if it's not you know Piers Robinson, it will be anyone who dares defy uh, whatever the the you know psychopathic notion of the state is at any particular day. The piece continues. Meanwhile, the intelligence services set the news agenda, including with smears that target those trying to hold them to account but cannot be scrutinized over such claims because they can shield behind the anonymity. That sentence, I thought, was incredibly telling. And then that made me think about the piece that we talked about back in April in a break with the past. You And this is from NBC News. U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. And I bring this piece up periodically because I think it's important for people to to hopefully it, that it registers with them and, and they realize that this piece says very clearly that the media is lying to you. They try to cloak it in the context of the noble lie, but they admit through NBC that they're lying to you and the other part of it is this thing really didn't seem to get a whole lot of traction no no it didn't and i think it's because we now have so many examples of people like ned price from the state department walking out and saying just that well official sources uh have said that vladimir putin will not stop until he reconstitutes the soviet union can we uh can we have some some evidence for that? Well, I, me me saying that the official sources said it is the evidence. Well, can you verify that? Well, we don't have to verify it. It could be true. It could not be true. But because we said it, it's reality, and that's what you have to report. And there's only so many times that they can walk out there and try to get away with that. They even the most sycophantic and careerist DC Beltway press corps journo it can take before they're like, "Hey, wait a minute, guys. We we actually kind of need you to to validate this in some way, shape, or form." And they're totally unwilling to. It's also interesting when you go to the story, this NBC News story, and you look at the fact that it was written by Ken Delanian. He was one of the one of the writers of the story. And I, I think if I have if I have his pedigree correct, he was fired from the L.A. Times because he was caught sending stories to the CIA and having the stories cleared by the CIA before they were published in the Times. And when the Times got wind of it, or at least when the Times got caught, they fired him. And now he's made his way over to to NBC News. But again, that whole intelligence apparatus is well entrenched and verified in the mainstream media news conglomerate. Oh, without explaining is a perfect example because this is somebody who fell up after it was exposed that he was working directly with intelligence. You would think 
that in in a country that at least uh, markets itself as having a free press or boasts to have a free press, that when a journalist gets caught red-handed feeding stories to the CIA for approval or editing or what have you, that they would no longer be employed as a journalist. And I guess technically, working for NBC, Kindelanian is, is not being employed as a journalist. He's being employed as a pundit or a talking head or something. But they pass him off as someone who who comes approaches it from a place of journalistic integrity and that is the the thinnest of possible soups at this point there's another piece in mint press which also shows the deadly nature of all of this cognitive warfare israel targets journalists who threaten its reality creation tactics they were shooting directly at the journalists. New evidence suggests Shireen Abu Akleh was killed in targeted attack by, by Israeli forces. She was assassinated. Thus read a CNN headline in May for an article describing what may have been a targeted killing, that is, assassination, of Al Jazeera journalist. With this killing and its aftermath, one knows that it is all hands on deck for an Israeli government. Cognitive war Israel wages against the world. Steve. So Israel has really lost a lot of ground in terms of, of their their public perception over the last several months. I can't remember uh, a time in my lifetime prior to about a year from now when it was the mainstream media was even allowed to question whether or not it was okay that Israel was wantonly slaughtering Palestinians in their own backyard. Uh, They're losing the plot a little bit. They're caught out doing all kinds of illegal stuff and committing all kinds of of extrajudicial assassinations, not just in Israel, but all over the Middle East. So finally, months later, when CNN comes out and says unequivocally, yes, this was murder, uh, I genuinely hope, and I may be a, a little bit fanciful here, but I do genuinely hope that that public perception of what Israel does and is doing, not just to Palestinians, but to anyone who would try to report on it accurately, uh, becomes a, an open conversation. You know, it's not that that I genuinely think anyone's going to rush to the aid of the Palestinians anytime soon, besides those of us that have been doing it the whole time. But I do think that we're finally at a point to where we can address some of this honestly without having to backpedal and try to, to, you know, put up a shield that says, look, I'm not anti-Semitic, but I just think it's wrong to murder journalists without being crucified. Maybe we're there. I don't know. I could be. It could be wishful thinking. Well, that takes me to my next point, which is how complicit is the United States in all of this when an American journalist, Shanin Abu Akleh, is assassinated by Israeli defense forces, so-called defense forces, and the United States does nothing when, in fact, Secretary of State Blinken just stands there and says, well, all the evidence isn't in yet, and we got to wait and see where this goes. And, by the way, the United States now goes to is on its way to Saudi Arabia when Joe Biden called Mohammed bin Salman a, a, a beast and a predator for the dismemberment of American green card holder working for The Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi. It's a, 
it's journalists only matter to the U.S. or to Joe Biden or to Anthony Blinken when it's convenient and we're the right and when they're the the right journalists. Because it's fine and good for Biden to lament what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, or it's fine and good for them to have an opinion after the fact one way or another on Shireen. But uh, Gonzalo Lira, who is an American Chilean journalist, was kidnapped, disappeared for several days in Ukraine. There wasn't a peep from the Biden administration about that. Ukraine is maintaining a kill list of journalists, <laughs> many of whom have either ties to America or ties to mm. an American ally. And I'm thinking specifically of, of Eva Bartlett on this one, who's a friend of mine, so mm -hmm. it's, it's personal. Mm -hmm. but, um, but she is on a kill list, and neither the U.S. government nor the Canadian government has acknowledged this. Eva's been on that list for over four years now. It is something that we've reported on in the past. Um, but uh, the, it's... It's always open season on journalists unless they are empire narrative managers. Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, Wilmer. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Back in, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Responsible Statecraft has a piece entitled, A U.S. Security Alliance in the Middle East is Unjustified. There is no legitimate case for Washington making new security commitments and assuming additional costs on behalf of Saudi Arabia and Israel. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow in the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So before we just get into the piece, let me get your take. Now Joe Biden is on his way. He'll be on his way shortly to Saudi Arabia with hat in hand. This whole idea of a security alliance in the Middle East as we look at what's happening in Ukraine, as we look at the United States continuing to try to stick its finger in the eye of China, this doesn't portend, this doesn't look good, Dr. Horn. Well, you have a point, and I have to say that with regard to the peace, by, I recall Paul Pillar, mm -hmm. who was a former CIA leading figure, from the point of view of the Hawks in Washington, uh, it was disappointing because, one, U.S. imperialism is trying to broker a so-called security alliance with Saudi Arabia and Israel because that's seen as part of an overall global strategy that has in the crosshairs the People's Republic of China and Russia. You need only look no further than the statement coming out of the NATO meeting just a few days ago in Spain, where it was made clear by the North Atlantic countries joined by Japan and Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea, that 
uh, Russia and China are in the crosshairs. And this is more than a notion. It'll have to be an all-hands-on-deck approach to bringing down both. And certainly Israel has a role to play, not least because it's perceived right now as dangerously close to Russia. It's been accused credibly of leaking sophisticated U.S. military technology to China, and it wields significant influence in U.S. domestic politics. And so that peace and responsible statecraft was rather tone-deaf and seemingly oblivious to these political realities. And then with regard to Saudi Arabia, as is well known, the Saudis are major investors in the U.S. economy, not only buying U.S. Treasury bills, which helps to keep the U.S. government afloat, everything from the Pentagon to the post office, but also funneling money to Uber and to Apple and to uh, Rupert Murdoch's Fox News, etc. And so Mr. Pillar should have contemplated that the Saudis and the Israelis are not necessarily going to be standing still as U.S. imperialism pulls the rug out from under them. And with regard to U.S. imperialism, it's apparent that, as Beijing put it, they're trying to kill uh, or harm three birds with one stone. Uh, That is to say, to bring down Russia, and in that regard, pay careful and close attention to all of these alarming questions, uh, articles, excuse me, about, quote, decolonizing, unquote, uh, Russia. That is to say, breaking up Russia seems to be the strategic objective. And I think that listeners should be made aware that this stems from the fact that ever since the Western European nations led by Britain and France got fat on the African slave trade and on the depopulation of the Americas, that they had a problem in their backyard with regard to Russia. And that problem is not going away anytime soon. So finally, from their point of view, they're grasping the nettle and they're determining that the Russia has to be broken up which is obviously more than a notion. It'll require all hands on deck. And with regard to that latter point, uh, you might have noticed uh, all the headlines in the major U.S. press today about how that erstwhile exporting machine known as the Federal Republic of Germany is now enduring a trade deficit. Uh, That is to say it's importing more than it's exporting, which is the first time that's happened in 30 years. It obviously has to do with Washington casting that second stone at the European Union, uh, forcing the European Union to break ties with Russian energy and then accept U.S. liquefied natural gas, uh, which will take a while to come online. And then, of course, the third stone is keeping uh, China from flexing its muscles and exhibiting its inexorable rise to being the number one economy on planet Earth. And with regard to Saudi Arabia, Mr. Pillar should explain. If the United States is going to disrupt ties with the Saudis, which I fully understand, in light of U.S. families continuing to protest about Saudi role, real and imagined, and the tragedy of September 11, 2001, well, where will the shortfall in oil be made up if the Saudis continue 
to be in a de facto alliance with Russia in oil and OPEC plus. I mean, this guy seems to be sort of oblivious to imperialist realities. And then, of course, there's the question with regard to oil. Well, I guess the United States will have to creep closer to Venezuela if they disrupt ties with Saudi Arabia. But how will that play in South Florida? With that reactionary block there that seems to hand that sunshine state on those silver platter to the Republicans every four years. And we haven't even talked about the boycott of Iran, another major oil producer, which is being demanded by the Israeli lobby, which, as aforementioned, is too powerful to go up against, at least thus far, given the political realities in the United States of America. So Mr. Pillar needs to explain all that, and he also needs to address Egypt, very close to Saudi Arabia. Uh, keep in mind that just the other day, the Egyptians were beaming and proud as they authorized and set in motion a new light rail transit system from Cairo to their new capital outside of Cairo. Of course, it was built by the People's Republic of China. And we haven't even talked about Saudi's relationship with the People's Republic of China. So uh, that article, it seems to me, has a, uh, a hash and a jumble of contradictions that the writer, for some reason, did not sort out, and the editor did not force him to do so. Which is why we always have a disclaimer when we talk about responsible statecraft pieces, is that you you have to be very discerning when you read them. What you've just uh, discussed sends me to another space. Let me ask this question. In the policy classes that I taught, I always said to, to the students that when you're developing policy, you, you have to always balance the theoretical versus the practical, that a lot of policy that sounds good doesn't always work out as you try to implement it. So as we look at what's now happening to the German economy, as we look at what's happening to France and Macron and the coalition government that he now can't form. As we have people in Poland going through the forest gathering sticks because they're having trouble with energy and they're trying to collect wood. I mean, there are practical realities here that are turning around and biting Joe Biden and his sanctions regime and his weakening Russia idea in the butt. What do you see happening between now and December, it just looks like a Chinua Atchebe's book, Things Fall Apart. Well, uh, I, I think that the North Atlantic countries led by the United States need to adopt and adapt a cultural attribute of Japan. You know that in Japan, when top leaders make blunders, not only do they engage sometimes in a ritualistic apology, sometimes they engage in harikai. This is a suicide. <laughs> And given the blunders and the peccadilloes and the missteps of U.S. imperialism and its advisors, which obviously underestimated Russia with regard to this conflict with Ukraine, which has set in motion this chain of events that's led to not only Russia and China coming closer together, but strengthening their ties and the BRICS Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, strengthening their ties in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a counterpoint to NATO, 
Uh, we now see Argentina knocking on the door of the BRICS, seeking admission along with Iran. Iran already affiliated with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, as is India, which the United States is assiduously courting uh, because of India uh, helping to keep the Russian economy afloat by buying uh, oil on the cheap uh, from Moscow. And all of this was foreseeable. <laughs> right. I'm sure they must have had a, a tabletop exercise with regard to this confrontation over Ukraine. They did not apparently contemplate what was inevitable. And as I said, uh, there needs to be some sort of ritualistic suicide by many of the leaders of the North Atlantic bloc led by the United States, but don't bet on it, I'm afraid to say, because now they're becoming ever more hysterical. You might have seen the piece from NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, which is now warning, one and all, that China's about to take over the moon. I mean, this is going beyond the realm of science fiction, but coming or crashing back to Earth, it's apparent that these so-called geniuses in Washington should have figured out a long time ago that it's going to be more than a notion to borrow from China in order to confront China. And in that regard, keep in mind that in motion may be one of the biggest heists of all time. Recall that after the Russian intervention in Ukraine, that the United States has frozen $300 billion in Russian assets, mm -hmm. and it's unclear what's going to happen. Already, with this new confrontation with China, and China, of course, has lent the United States at least $1 trillion, probably more. Chinese interests own apartment buildings and all manner of facilities, not only in the United States, but in the North Atlantic countries and Japan, Australia, New Zealand, etc. So one of the biggest, highest of all time might be in motion, which could simultaneously weaken China and strengthen China's antagonists. Now, of course... If I'm aware of this, China's aware of this, and it seems to me that instead of uh, lurching towards ritualistic suicide, it seems to me that the North Atlantic countries led by the United States are trying another manner to reach suicide, which is trying to rip off China at trillions of dollars, which is not the wisest thing to attempt with regard to a nuclear power that simultaneously you're saying is about to take over the moon. Responsible Statecraft has another piece. Both parties agree on one thing, more money for the military. We have about a minute and a half left. Talk about how tone deaf both sides of the aisle are. And at the same time, Zelensky's asking for $750 billion to rebuild Ukraine. Well, once again, speaking of blunders, the United States and his North Atlantic allies not only blundered into adopting the basket case economy that is Ukraine, but rapidly uh, behind Ukraine in that ignominious category is Poland, which you've already suggested uh, is, is about to endure an energy crunch, war, which will have many Poles freezing in the dark, not to mention the Baltic republics, uh, led by Lithuania, which is trying to put the squeeze on the Russian city of Kaliningrad, which even has Brussels nervous. So in this so-called Top Gun world, I'm referring to the new Tom Cruise vehicle that's going boffle at the box office, trying to revive the militarism of the 1980s and 2022. But I'm afraid to say that it's too late. 
uh, for Hollywood movies to justify U.S. militarism and imperialism, the United States is obviously behind the eight ball with few exits in, that are visible. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. Looking forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing my voice into your space, and I hope you were informed and enlightened, and I look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. I'm out.